Everything in the central area here in Hollywood is being funneled toward the Pantages Theater because this is Oscar night. And keep your eyes on the losers tonight as they applaud the winners. You'll see great understanding, great sportsmanship, great acting. Well, the only thing left to say is, meet the champion. Hello, and welcome back to The Snub Club. The podcast where we talk about the movie that has the most Oscar noms and no wins whatsoever. I'm your host, Danny Vincent, and if I seem tired, it's because we just watched a three-hour-long movie. Who else is here who watched a three-hour-long movie? Are we? What accent is that? Is that our? Are we using our Roman accents? Yeah, I'm just doing an accent that has nothing to do with Rome because I assume that would fit the film. Hey, gabagool! <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, my name is Sarah, and I guess this is The Sopranos now. <laughs> I am Caleb, one of your mini saints in Newark. Nice. I've never watched an episode of The Sopranos, but you know what I have watched? The opera episode where they visit The Sopranos. Oh, Maron. Yeah. Anyway, this week we're at the 24th Academy Awards, and I've got a countdown for you. This might be the longest countdown we've done yet, even though there's only three films. With 12 nominations, was A Streetcar Named Desire. It won four of these. Best Actress for Vivian Lee. Best Supporting Actor for Carl Malden, Best Supporting Actress for Kim Hunter, and Best Art Direction Black and White. With nine nominations was A Place in the Sun. It won six of these nominations. Best Director for your friend of the podcast, George Stevens. Best Screenplay. Best Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture. Best Cinematography Black and White. Best Costume Design Black and White. And Best Film Editing. There were two films that had eight nominations. One of them was called An American in Paris. It won six of its nominations. Best Picture, Best Story and Screenplay, Best Scoring of a Musical Picture, Best Art Direction Color, Best Cinematography Color, and Best Costume Design Color. And then there was a movie that had eight nominations and no wins. And that film was called Quo Va. Vitus. Is it Vitus or Vitus? It's Vitus. Vitus. That's what I thought, honestly, but I double guessed myself. In actual Latin, it would be Vitus, but. Well, we're not going to do that. <laughs> That's not going to happen. <laughs> Sarah! Sorry. Yeah. Sarah, yes. what was this nominated for? Oh, gosh. Okay, this is going to be a lot. All right. <clears throat> got a long one today. It was nominated for Best Picture and lost to An American in Paris. Best Supporting Actor for Leo Gen, who lost to Carl Malden in A Streetcar Named Desire. Best Supporting Actor for Peter Ustinov. Uh, who did he also... ever, did he, you guys ever get nominated again? No? Yes, maybe so. You usually say. Well, I haven't. I mean, I'm only a third person. Oh, well, okay, okay. I guess so Leo, <laughs> Leo, Leo Gen didn't get Leo nominated. Leo Gen yet. was not. <laughs> Okay. If I, if I don't say anything, then they get <laughs> We got some major Leo Gen fans here. I'm sorry. He wasn't. Peter Ustinov, who was also nominated for Best Supporting Actor, um, was also nominated for Best Original Screenplay for the movie Hot Millions. He won Best Supporting Actor two times, and he is also an ego winner. He just did not win a Tony. Um, very, His wiki page is pretty interesting. I yeah. was looking at it earlier. But very we'll interesting get into that. career. 
Um, Best Cinematography Color for Robert Surtees and William V. Skull. Uh, they lost to uh, Alfred Gilks and John Alton for An American in Paris. Uh, Surtees was nominated 12 more times, um, including The Graduate, The Sting, and Oklahoma. Um, and he won three. And Skull was nominated seven more times, and he won for Joan of Arc. Uh, Best Art Direction Color for William A. Horning, Cedric Gibbons, uh, Edward Carfano, and Hugh Hunt. And they lost to Cedric Gibbons, E. Preston Ames, Edwin B. Willis, and F. Co. Gleason for An American in Paris. (laughs) Um, Horning was nominated five more times and won two posthumously. Gibbons was nominated 27 times and won 11, including that year. Uh, Carfania was nominated six more times and won three. And Hunt was nominated 10 more times and won two. Best costume design color for Herschel McCoy, who lost to Ori Kelly, uh, Walter Plunkett, and Irene Sheriff for An American in Paris. And McCoy was also nominated for Dream Wife in 1954. Best Film Editing for Ralph E. Winters, who lost to William Hornbeck for A Place in the Sun. Uh, And Winters was nominated three more times and won two times. And finally, Best Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture, Friend of the Show, Miklos Rosa, uh, who lost to Franz Waxman for A Place in the Sun. And of course, Miklos Rosa was nominated 13 more times and won three. And I'm sure I've said that many times. (laughs) I'm curious if he's my most listened to composer on Letterboxd uh, in the last two years. Feels like it's probably true. Go on, sorry. That's it. That's all there oh, is. Oh, that was it? Well, before we get into the store context, which I'm sure Caleb actually has a lot of, we could talk about the ceremony, but can we talk about something I feel like you glossed over? You said it, but I felt like we should give it a bigger deal, is that William A. Horning is the only person ever to win two posthumous Academy Awards. That's pretty neat. I mean, mm-hmm. probably not for him because he was dead before he won. I'm sure anything. he appreciated the <laughs> gesture. <laughs> I'm sure he appreciates being like a trivia question for Oscar nerds. <laughs> His legacy lives on. Wasn't James Dean nominated nominated twice posthumously? Uh, there are other people who were nominated twice posthumously. I just saw there was a composer that got nominated at the same ceremony for Bambi in two separate categories, probably song and and Howard Ashman, of course was nominated for Aladdin and for Beauty and the Beast. Uh, so there are a lot of nominations, but he's the only winner to get a posthumous nom. Oh, I'm looking at the him. posthumous wins. Do you know who the last posthumous win was? Oh, I'm going to guess. Ledger. Besides yeah, I was going to say Heath Ledger. <laughs> Actually, Heath Ledger is not the last posthumous win. There was one in 2013. Uh, documentary feature director or producer for 20 Feet from Stardom. Oh, yeah. William A. Horning is the only posthumous winner. And he actually had a third posthumous nom. I think you probably mentioned it. About the ceremony, because I feel like historic context is always best last. Sorry, Caleb. It just makes sense. It actually gets us into our topic. I think the only thing of note here is that Marlon Brando didn't win, which is interesting because he's the only thing people talk about these days from Streetcar Named Desire. American in Paris is only the second color film to win Best Picture, but it's the first since Grand Hotel to win without any acting nominations. Humphrey Bogart's The Last Man Born in the 19th Century to win the leading Oscar. They gave an honorary award for Gene Kelly because of his versatility as, for, as actor, singer, director, and dancer in American in Paris. And Rashomon won foreign film. I do notice there is one classic that was nominated in a category that only was nominated for one award, which always tells you that you should never trust the Academy. 
That is, of course, our friend of the podcast and personal friend of mine. I've talked to his ghost a few times. Uh, Billy Wath. <laughs> Billy. Uh, Ace in the Hole. Oh, good movie. This good year. movie. Yeah, it was only nominated for original screenplay, which huh. checks out. There's a lot of great movies over the years that have only been nominated for screenplay, nothing else. Um, I have two things that I just noticed looking at this. Uh, the first one is just a little fun one. Uh, best short subject for cartoons was The Two Mouseketeers, which is a Tom and Jerry short. Oh, cool. I actually assumed it was Mickey, but go on. Sorry. And then this one I just I just discovered, and I'm obsessed with this, uh, a movie called <laughs> I Was a Communist for the FBI, which is a dramatic picture with actors and a script was nominated for Best <laughs> I just noticed that. <laughs> it was just so it was so real that they had to nominate him for Best Documentary. Just in case you forgot we were in the Red Scare. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit, I'm sorry. Well, it's funny because then the other option is Contiki. So of course they're going to nominate the blue. Give the winner. It's like, hmm, should I give this to a documentary or should I give this to... A fill. <laughs> a narrative. That's really funny, honestly. Um, so, Caleb, now you can give you a serious historic context. Okay. So, I'm I'm a classics major, along with a film major. Yes. I, I don't get to use my classics knowledge much. It doesn't come up. Um, it certainly hasn't gotten me a we'll job. We also go to church, and we both don't. So. <laughs> True. Yeah. No. <laughs> So actually, this is the perfect combination of two of my points of knowledge, Roman history and uh, the church, although early church history is boring. So there's a lot of different paths I could go down on this, and I'm sure I will sprinkle in more historical context as we go on. But I feel like the the two things that make the most sense to focus in on are uh, Peter and Paul's roles in this as uh, the founders of the Roman church, and then Nero. Uh, the Emperor, because this is a movie that takes place in 64 AD during the, uh, or leading up to, and then during the Great Fire of Rome. And it's kind of a conspiracy theory movie because it plays into a conspiracy at the time. And then, um, depending on who you talk to, a viable historic figure theory, uh, historical f- theory that Nero was behind the burning of Rome. Um, most of the evidence does not point to this. Um, Nero was a very bad leader. Um, he came to power very young, uh, was controlled mainly by his mother. And then when he had his mother killed, kind of just turned into, uh, using his platform to play poet, play bard, play gladiator, um, and kind of just waste away the resources of the empire. And so when the fire happened, He saw that as a great opportunity to seize up a bunch of land and build himself a fancy new palace, which led a lot of people to then say uh, that he was... Qualvitis. Oh, sorry, go on. It led a lot of people to believe that he orchestrated the fire, um, despite the fact that he actually had... um, He actually did a fairly good job responding immediately to the fire, and then obviously a very bad job stealing all the land. But this led to the first time Christians were persecuted in the Roman Empire. They were still a very uh, small sect. Most Romans probably had never even heard of a Christian. They would have been mainly um, uh, foreigners, slaves, women. Those uh, kind of lower rungs on the social ladder is where Christianity would have spread. Um, But Nero 
saw them as an easy scapegoat, decided to get some pressure off of him, but went a little too hard, and the people actually turned against him because of the brutality um, that he uh, that he dealt out onto the Christians. Um, and then, of course, a little bit later, uh, he commits suicide after being declared an enemy of the state. Um, but so this movie. Yo, I'm looking at the picture of Nero and he looks just like the guy. Sorry, go on. Uh, so this movie. Now I gotta see. <laughs> this movie takes that idea that he did actually burn down Rome and it runs with it. Um, so it's kind of a, kind of a conspiracy theory movie, but in a fun JFK. way. JFK. Yeah, it's kind of like JFK. It's JFK of the 50s. It kind of is. Uh, um, uh, The other thing is that this plays into the traditional Christian belief that Peter and Paul founded Rome, or the Church of Rome, uh, that is not actually (laughs) historically true. Sorry, I'm just laughing at the idea of Peter and Paul thinking, all right, we're going to call this city Rome. Suicide Romulus and Remus. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Sorry. But yeah, no, uh, they didn't actually found the Church of Rome. The Church of Rome was founded, and then they're... Obvious, uh, obviously, their teachings influenced it, and um, according to tradition, at least, Paul was uh, imprisoned in Durham for two years awaiting trial, um, so he probably had some interaction with it, if you follow that uh, belief. Um, but this is going full ham on a lot of traditional Christian beliefs that maybe didn't happen. Probably didn't happen, but... It was a movie. I... <laughs> I think that it's, I think that, I mean, this is a very notable film. I mean, I had heard of it before. I'm sure other people had heard of it before. Well, I think it's. I, sorry, go on. Sorry. I was going to make I a dumb joke about that movie. I think that it's interesting, the movies that are more well-known. Movies like Spartacus and Ben-Hur and the I'm Ten Commandments. Oh, you mean like, okay, of this era. Of this like, era. Okay, yes. got it. Yeah. Like movies like. That have that same, maybe not Spartacus, obviously, but that same sort of like epic scale. It's interesting what movies people actually care about. I just, I found, I just didn't find it engaging. And that's 90% of the movies that we watch. But I just, I didn't find it engaging. I thought that it looked very cool. I will give credit where credit is due. I think that the scale of it, the effects. The spectacle. Yes, most of the cinematography, but I don't think it can be necessarily blamed because it's just the time period. I just didn't find I I just find it always kind of goofy when there's a movie like this where like half of the people have like transatlantic accents and then half of them have like British accents and then some of them have Italian accents. It's just bizarre. It just it is weird because this at the time was considered like really historically accurate. Which nowadays, if you didn't have, you know, if you didn't have brown people, if you didn't have all this stuff, then it would not be, it would not be acceptable, which I understand. I'm not. What are you talking about? Exodus Gods and Kings only came out eight years ago. Cancel me. Cancel me. (laughs) Exodus Gods and Kings had Christian Vale in it and Joel Edgerton, you know, number one person at the box office, Joel Edgerton. He definitely sold that movie. I just. I appreciate. I can appreciate it. I would never go out of my way to watch this. Um. Okay. I agree. If the especially on the spectacle. Um. I agree for the most part. Honestly. Um. I think the spectacle of this is so such a 
huge leap forward from everything we've seen that I totally understand why it was a big deal in 1951 compared to like literally everything we've watched up to this point. This is just such a big movie in terms of like, I mean, it, it's kind of lame at points. Like, you know, one of the big fight scenes is just they're throwing a whip back and forth on a chariot. And it's just really repetitive. But it's also like, oh, yeah, 1951, this probably was like, oh, shit, they're actually doing it, you know? Like, uh, and it it definitely feels like spare no expense. Uh, and in a, in a lot of ways, it reminds me of Titanic. Uh, but the difference is in Titanic is... Maybe I like maybe I like Titanic more than YouTube, but in Titanic, you for me, I really care about Rose and Jack. Uh, look, even if you, Sarah's giving a face, uh, even if you don't care about Rose and Jack, they are miles miles better than the romantic leads we're given to care about here. Who I am sure we will get into all the things this man does, and who's still presented throughout the whole film as a romantic lead that you're supposed to want uh but that was the key issue to me is that the first hour and a half is like dedicated to caring about this romance that way when the fire of rome happens you care about it but like they're terrible one of them's a completely terrible person (laughs) honestly feels like more of a villain of the movie to me than nero well Uh, i'm almost here's my thought process so he's played by robert taylor i think this was probably his star maker um, for Robert Taylor, but I'm honestly feeling like this is my opinion. If the original casting went through and he was played by Gregory Peck, we all would be saying how dreamy he is and how great of a character he no, is. No, because he'd still be trying to sneak around to buy her behind her back. We'll get into that. I don't want to get too much into that until Caleb gives his thoughts on it. But basically, to me, this was just like once that fire of Rome set piece happened, though, I was like, wow, this is incredible. This was made at this time. But like, Otherwise, it was just kind of like, I didn't care about any of the characters besides Nero and Petronius, who I don't really care about. I'm just entertained by them. Uh, So, yeah. If we got the original cast, if we got Audrey Hepburn and and Gregory Peck, uh, Roman Roman Holiday who? (laughs) (laughs) This is the original Roman Holiday. (laughs) So there are two kind of uh, like biblical, historical you know, Roman era epics. There are your prestige films like Ben Hur, like Ten Commandments, which both came after this, or at least the color talking version. The robe came at. What about the robe? Uh, I don't know that much about the robe. The robe, I think, is either next year or this year. All right, great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my point is, you have the prestige pictures, and then you have the other version, which is like. Uh, the story of Ruth and Solomon and Bathsheba. And those are movies that really want to be super horny. And so they mask it behind telling a Bible story, heavy quotation marks on the Bible story. This movie was trying to be a prestige picture. I really wish it had just been the secretly horny picture because whenever this gets into the early church stuff, it's extremely boring. Whenever this is just, like whiny Nero running around and <laughs> his evil wife with her uh with her brace of leopards and all this stuff. All that stuff is super fun. Unfortunately, I do think it is and and I had fun with this just because it is Roman. You can have fun with both the things that get right and the things that get wrong about it. Um but uh so even though I enjoyed this, I can't honestly say that was a good movie. 
I feel like I do want to have on the record that despite this being three hours long, it still felt to me way shorter than about half the movies we watch. <laughs> and I also didn't like it too much, but the spectacle, you know, got oh, me it's beautiful. It's it's the most expensive movie up to the date of the release. I just saw that on Wikipedia. And you know, if it's on Wikipedia, it's true. It's only our second film in color, right? Uh, no. Uh, you forgot about the oh, song the, to remember. The, yeah. You forgot about the, the show, song to the remember. Chopin. Yeah, no, that was, <laughs> that was our first. It. That was our oh, first. Henry this the is fifth. our second. Henry the fifth. Oh, okay. Yeah, oh, Henry yeah. V. Okay. This See, looks... I remember the Henry V way more than I remember the Chopin movie. This looks better than both of those. <laughs> yeah, definitely. $7 million at the time. I remember, according to the back of the DVD I had, it was like, people were worried MGM could fail if this movie bombed, which makes sense because it was expensive. But, like, again, it's like every dollar you can see on screen. It, it, it is a gorgeous movie. Shot on location in Rome for a lot of it. At, a, at Benito Mussolini's uh, film studio. According to him, the last Roman emperor. <laughs> <laughs> this film has a record for most costumes in a movie. It has 32,000 costumes in a movie. Yeah. Oh, wow. wow. I mean, that makes sense. I don't think any costumes were repeated except for some soldiers. And there yeah. are a fair amount of characters in here. So, Should we talk about the movie or should we talk about a cameo in the movie that I really want to mention at some point? Well, I do have one fact that I've been sitting on because I think it's really funny for some reason. What? <laughs> I don't know why it's funny to me. So we've said time and time again, everybody involved in these films, long dead. <laughs> Everyone is dead. There is there, one person. Yes, you're right. There is one person alive in this. He is the, still alive. Who played? He played Lucian or Lucan. Alfredo Varelli is 107 years old. He's going to hey. turn 108 this August. You know what and that he is means? Still alive. We got to hurry up and get him on the pod. <laughs> well, you know who else is alive? Who's younger? That was in this movie. Who has an Oscar? Sophia Loren has a cameo oh, in this movie as a slave. I didn't know she was still well, alive. Not, not, yeah, she was had a movie out like two years ago. She was like num- she was nominated, I think, probably at the Golden Globes or something. Like not not, not anywhere important, but like her movie was nominated at the Golden Globes, I feel like. Um yeah, she was in this. And you know what else had a cameo in this besides uh well you There's a few cameos. Yeah, well, I was gonna say you misspoke i think it wasn't audrey hepburn who was supposed to be in this it was elizabeth yeah, taylor she was audrey hepburn was also was also uh, it said well it said elizabeth taylor signed but then they had to push yeah, production back audrey hepburn was the first choice and then they cast elizabeth taylor and then they cast deborah kurt yeah, well elizabeth taylor has a cameo in it and you know what else has a cameo in it caleb's second favorite character from star wars episode two attack of the clones Dexter Jetster? Wait, no, that's that, your first favorite that, character. Well, no, Yoda's <laughs> in there. Yoda's in there by default. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, how about Count Dooku? I do Ooh. love Christopher Lee. He <laughs> Christopher is my. Lee is in this. He's like he's just a chariot driver in one of the action scenes, I think. But he's in it. He's there. I think that's very. Isn't that weird to think about? Where it's like an actor that we always think of as being like old and like somewhat contemporary, and he's in an old movie like this. That's oh, yeah. true. I'm curious, like, and I'm looking at Christopher Lee's page. What is the earliest Christopher Lee movie I've seen? I, mean, I guess I could watch his Dracula. Yeah, have you seen any of the Hammer stuff? 
Because he he is a I mean he was a B movie actor until the nineties. Like he did not. I haven't I haven't even seen his Bond movie. I should see his James Bond movie at some point. Oh, Man with the Golden Guns one of my favorites. Yeah, I haven't seen it. Sorry, sorry, cancel me. Anyway, like all Bond movies, it's extremely problematic. (laughs) Hey, speaking of which, let's talk about this movie. (laughs) Despite this being three hours long, I don't think there's really a lot of plot. Because again, like there's a solid like thirty minutes of just the fire of Rome that's like this giant spectacle that's like ooh very cool. And we kind of went over the plot anyway. It's just you know Jesus is here. People are talking about God. Well, Jesus, hey, no, Jesus okay. is no longer. So here. Jesus is <laughs> Paul is here. Paul is talking about God, and Peter is here, and Peter looks super old. There is a Roman uh, centurion who is coming back. He was leading the Fourteenth Legion, I believe, named Marcus. He's coming back from Britain, where he had just put down a rebellion. Um, and he, for shenanigans reasons, he has to stay at an old Roman general's villa before he can enter Rome and do his triumph. Uh, and there he finds Deborah Kerr, who's playing um, Lygia, is her name, a hostage of Rome, who uh, her and this general and all their you know, slaves and stuff are all uh, Christians. And then Apostle Paul comes to dinner and it becomes this whole thing where Marcus is very creepy and possessive and. Yeah. It's immediately a turn off. Yeah. And he, so he's trying to get with, he's trying to get with uh, Lydia and Lydia is like, I'm attracted to you, but could you be a Christian? And then in the background, Nero is, uh, you know, going crazy. And he's like, ah, my greatest act as an artist will be burning down Rome. And then the second half is him blaming the Christians for it. Yeah. Um, What I will say is I I really do want to talk about Marcus and Lydia's, uh, what do you call it, courting? Because it's really not that. It's, It's that that would be like being too kind to it. Him basically like being like, "Hey, baby, how you doing?" And her being like, "You're not a Christian, so I don't want to talk to you." And he's like, "Well, then I'll buy you." <laughs> well, even <laughs> even before it's revealed she's a Christian, she doesn't want to talk to him, and you can understand yeah, why. Yeah, he's like a murderer, and he's just like he's very uh he's very Gaston, very like, "Hey, check this out. Look at this." You know. The famous Gaston lines being the beast. Hey, check this out. Watch this. I think I, I think I might have blocked this all out because none of this is really, none of this is really resonating with me. It's bad. <laughs> it's really rough. Because then also it's just like I don't even remember. It's literally just like he gets in a little bit of danger, and the next time she sees him, she's like, "Oh, I'm sorry. I miss you so much. I actually do love you." It's like, what? oh yeah, he got a little what? cut on his head. That's right. Yeah, it's just like what this romance is terrible. Because from moment one, he is like, "Ah, oh, you're a beautiful slave, and I will have you." Blah blah blah. He basically kidnaps her and brings her to the royal palace at one point, and then yeah, on on a dime, she is like, "I'm in love with you," and he is like, "I now respect you and your Christianity enough to let you go," but. The thing is, is that even though he does say that, it's like, she's like, you don't have to join the church, but 
Perhaps you should free your slaves. And he's like, whatever would I do that for? Classic. Like, All right. <laughs> Classic flirt to convert. Oh, he does have a line. He does have a line where he's like, he's like, who would, who would do all the work? It, it literally is. Yeah, that's just exchange. He's like, you should perhaps leave your, free your slaves like God would like you to. He's like, what? why? Who would do the work? It's literally just that. Uh. And then pretty much like two scenes later, that's when the fire of Rome happens. So he does this big hero thing. And that's when people like, you know, you're kind of obligated to like him because he's like saving like so many people. But it's just like, he's still like, I'm not, I don't like this romance. I don't like this love story. No. And I feel like it really pulls focus from it for a good while. Like the fire, while he's trying to save people the beginning like before and after that really focuses on his uncle who's one of nero's advisors and nero himself yeah and they're great i love them in this movie they're so over the top they're fantastic nero is such a cartoon character i'll allow it that's that's fun to the movie he also looks just like nero i looked him up nero that is they look exactly like wow looks just like the statue Wow. Roman statues of people, very famous for being accurate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't know what's <laughs> up with my voice right now. Did you guys did you guys notice during the scene during the fire when there's it's like that classic moment, that Oscar moment where there's a child and then yeah. she's like, Mama! And then a guy walks past and he's got a big smile on his face. <laughs> Yes, the extra, the extra is just excited to be in the movie. <laughs> it's like um, it's like the famous shot in the Dunkirk trailer where um, and it's in the movie too, where it's like they're all like huddling at the beach and they're terrified. And they're supposed to look up the plane. There's just a guy who's like smiling dopely at the camera. I bet like, it was. I bet it was Harry. It's not Harry. It's an extra. Because it, if it was Harry, it would be like Harry. Come on. <laughs> oh you. <laughs> oh Harry. <laughs> During the triumph scene. Which is not that plot important, but um, did y'all think that that scene resembled Lenny Riefenstahl's work at all? Let me just let me just pull up a, an unrelated tab. Lenny <laughs> Riefenstahl did Triumph of the Will and Olympia. I, I'm gonna rip off a podcast. I know Mary thought it reminded her of Triumph of the Will. <laughs> She is. She is. Olympia. I definitely know that 1938 German sports film written, directed, and produced by Lenny Riefenstahl, which documented the 1936. You went to film school. How did you not watch Riefenstahl? I mean, I feel like something like Triumph of the Will feels a little forbidden. I feel like I watched that. I feel like there should be. That would be like. There should be like a rule. We spent like four weeks on that movie in one of my classes. Should, you know how like there's that rule and on like just the internet in general called Godwin's Law, where it's like uh, you should never like if once you bring up Hitler in the argument, you've lost the argument. I feel like there should be like the opposite law, which is that when people are talking about female directors, if they bring up Lenny Reichenstahl, you just know they're just a piece of. Shit. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I feel like listen. I watching... had to s- suffer through both of those movies in film school. So well, I feel like showing Triumph of the Will is kind of like showing Birth of a Nation, and who would show that in film school? I also <laughs> one of those movies I totally didn't have to sit through. Okay, okay, you know. okay. Well, okay. I will say 
with Birth of a Nation, I think the context of you watching the Birth of a Nation in film school, Caleb, is the one time it's okay, which is... We watch just it. watched it in Film 101. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, we didn't watch the whole thing. We watched clips, but that's still not good. Yes, but I, I did watch it in American the... Images in film, yeah. Yes, that that's like the one time I feel like it's okay to like watch it, because it's obviously not, you're like, look at the, the cross-cutting. That's okay. not what's going on there. To be fair, to uh, my... Professor who showed me Birth of a Nation, not Birth of a Nation, um, Triumph of the Will, and to my one who showed me Olympiad. Um, Lenny Riefenstahl's work was extremely uh, influential, and for a long time, people would strip away the context of it and just lift the visuals. You even see this in Star Wars a little bit at certain times. Don't they do it in Lion King also? Yes, they do it in Lion King, they do it in Star Wars, and I think they're doing it here. Um, and both of my professors who taught Riefenstahl were very adamant that, the, you know, we are not stripping away the context of this. Um, so I feel like both of my professors who show them uh, gave due context. However, I do feel like uh, this is an example of an American filmmaker taking from uh, Riefenstahl's work and specifically trying to pose Nero as a fascist uh, character in a way that 1950s audiences would hate him even more so. I wouldn't know, because I don't watch female directors. What I'll say about Laini Raif, I think it's interesting that the Wikipedia page for Triumph of the Will lists as starring Adolf Hitler. I don't think any most documentaries list the starring character under starring. Well, have I got... A documentary for you. <laughs> it's called I Was a Communist in the FBI. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder who it stars. <laughs> um, any thoughts on the back half of this movie, which is just one long, you know, like feeding them to the lion scene? Uh, I did notice. I want to look up who the actor is because I feel like he has to be alive. There was a very androgynous looking character, which I thought was interesting. That was literally the only thing that's. Are you talking about the, the boy? Yeah, the kid was very looking. He's probably alive. Could be. I don't know who it was, what his name was, but he's probably alive, I'd assume. Hopefully, fingers crossed. Just assume assume they're all alive. Yeah. Like, uh, uh, Peter Usinov. We never talked about Peter Usinov in his interesting Wikipedia page. He's Nero. He's the guy who plays Nero. He looks just like him. So I've heard. <laughs> There's a college named after him because of how good he was at being a college chancellor. He was a UNICEF uh, goodwill ambassador. You mean UNICEF? Yeah, UNICEF. Like, you know, the medicine. <laughs> Caleb is baseballing <laughs> right now. <laughs> he was the president of the World Federalist Movement. So let's see if I agree with him politically. I would assume probably. Oh, he's in Lorenzo's Oil. I should watch Lorenzo's Oil. Hey, you know what else he's in? What? The Great yeah. Muppet Caper. Oh, that's like one he of the plays, one Mu- Muppet movies I haven't seen. He plays truck driver. Ah, uh, that famous role. It was probably a cameo. People probably saw it and they were like, oh my god, it's it's, him. it's, it's Peter. I love it. <laughs> it's oh Nero. Nero's driving a truck. Yay! 
He also played uh, Charlie Chan in Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen. Well, let's not talk about that one. <laughs> well, what year was that? Uh, that was that the, it, the year before, that it, the same year as Great Muppet Caper, nineteen eighty-one. Roger Niebuhr gave it two thumbs down. What are we talking about? What we, <laughs> we have three hours of movie to talk about. Why are we doing this? Because we're doing a three-hour podcast. Get over it. Yeah, you got. We've got a. Uh, we've got about two hours and twenty minutes to fill. Caleb, calm down. We're following the rules. You know, Michelle Pfeiffer was in this movie. Peter Ustinov. That means we can do. 50 Degrees of Bacon with Peter Ustinov and Michelle Pfeiffer and get it in one. I I hated how uh, how Peter and Paul were used in this movie. It felt like really cheap like cameos. Uh, in fact, hey, the most... audience probably stood up Talk about it, a cameo. It? There was a cameo. Honestly, <laughs> everything in this movie involving the Christianity felt really weird and really like, uh, like a fan service-y. It was very what? I when they showed the Last Supper. Yeah, the Last Supper <laughs> shot. It's him. Pro- it's him. Okay, okay. Well, that that shot was probably like mind blowing at the time. Let's be real. Everyone saw that shot. Was like, oh my god. <laughs> if no, like the only thing before then that got audiences so excited was the train in arrival of the train, La <laughs> Croix Station. We've talked about it a little bit, but the fire sequence is extremely impressive and it just it made me think about how like lame fire on film is today because it's all digital which makes sense it's safer it's cheaper but man real fire photographs so well and it's a genuinely great destruction sequence do you know what was not do you know what was not good in this movie was the sound recording Yes. Very bad. <laughs> Very bad sound recording at once. It's the one thing that really shows its age. But it's just, I, oh, it just, I don't know if it's because they had such huge sets. I don't know if they just dropped the ball on that one. Just not good. A lot of peaking. Um, there's one thing that we haven't talked about, which I feel like is actually kind of important. Um, that is some great supporting actors in this movie. Supporting actresses, I should say. The Lions. Mm. Lots of exotic cats in this. Yes. They're pretty cool. I like the cats. Lions are They're cool. They're of cats. There was, I mean, they were cool. They were, they were good girls doing their jobs, killing the people. I prefer dogs, though. They, I agree. They probably had not a great time on set, I would imagine. Uh, there's this part in the triumph where it shows the slave who has to remind the general that they're... D- just a man. I like that. That was a cool little detail. Um, I'm just trying to stop you from reading the Wikipedia page. There's a long segment on uh, the score. Yeah, the score was uh, authentic, which is interesting. I forgot to mention about that, though. Wait, wait. My last Peter Ustinov thing is that uh, Mikos Rosa actually named a uh, Sweet after Ustinov because of how good friends they were. I think that was pretty neat. I think that was a fun fact. Sorry, we can talk about the score. I mean, there's not much to talk about. I mean, we close has not really guys, impressed me. Did you guys listen to the intro music and the exit music like I did, like real fans do? No, this was a three hour long movie and I had to watch it today. I cut corners where I could. 
Meanwhile, I showed up late to D&D yesterday because I wanted to get the full experience. Mm-hmm. I also showed up late today because I was watching Barry. I'm just going to read off more of the things I liked that were Romy. We got a lot of time to fill. We got to keep going. Uh, there's a cool, uh, like, Bakken freeze uh, at one of the scenes. All the statues and freezes uh, are not painted, which would not have been accurate, but kind of plays into this idea of Rome we have. And it's one of those things where it's like, you don't sell the, you don't sell the story, you sell the legend. Um, let's see. Uh, they call Nero the Antichrist, which was a big theory that Revelations was just a allegory for Nero, especially because there's a belief that Nero was uh, was not dead, that his death was faked. They didn't say the line when Nero dies in this. They don't say his famous uh, one of his famous last words. Uh, what an artist the world is losing, which that's lame. Yeah, and they play chess at one point, even though chess was not invented. You know what was invented? Rome. Not in a day. Just, just not in a day. I was We're on the same wavelength. <laughs> Great line. I did like, there was a line. I didn't, I mean, I don't know. Usu's performance was so over the top. There was a line that I liked. He was okay. I just feel like it was too much. Too much Nero, which I guess is probably the point. I did have, he did have one line that I really liked where everybody was like, oh, I don't know, I don't know, sir. And he was like, I'm surrounded by eunuchs. And I thought that was a good line. It reminded me of the Lion King where he goes, I'm surrounded by idiots. But they should, he should have said in Lion King, I'm surrounded by people who have been spayed or neutered. I think it's just neutered. I don't think it's spayed. There's a woman in the Lion King. Her name is Shenzi. What? <laughs> Her name is Shenzi. Approximately one woman. I do think there's some pretty decent dialogue. And the remake, she becomes a girl boss. Okay? Go on. Sorry. <laughs> I do think there's some uh, pretty entertaining dialogue, especially with... Um, what's Marcus's uncle's name? Um, Petronius. Petronius. He has some very witty like comebacks uh, and underhanded remarks to Nero um, because he is trying to do the thing where he like subtly pushes Nero away but the whole time you can tell it's like oh i hate this guy i think we should wrap this up wait you should say how much money this made how much did it make it was the highest grossing film in 1951 made 11 million dollars in the u.s 10 million dollars overseas profit to the studio was considered to be five million five hundred thousand dollars just pretty good profit especially considering this cost seven million dollars Ooh, Variety wrote, this film is right up there with Birth of a Nation and Gone with the Wind. Well, that's really a good company to be in there, right? This is probably the least problematic yeah. of the three. So <laughs> it's easily the least problematic, even though we had issues of it. Uh, all right. Uh, Sarah? Yeah. What was this nominated for? Um, well, believe it or not, this was nominated for uh, Best Picture. Best Supporting Actor for Leo Gen. His only nomination ever. Uh, best, support, best Supporting Actor for Peter Ustinov. Uh, best Cinematography Color. Best Art Direction Color. Best Costume Design Color. Best Film Editing, which we didn't talk about at all. And Best Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture. Alright, I gotta pick the villain of the picture. Peter Ustinov. Constantly entertained when he was on screen. He was great. I loved him. 
Plus, he looks exactly like Nero. How do they do that? <laughs> actually, I actually opened up this portal to 64 AD to confirm, and he does look exactly <laughs> like the Emperor Nero. Wow. Great casting. How'd they find him? I'm going to say I could go for a few things here, honestly, but I will say best cinematography. No. Mm. I'm going to say best art direction. (laughs) I almost said cinematography. I'm going to say best art direction. And I, it is an honor to partially give this award to Benito Mussolini. Great. Um, Love it. Since you went with art direction, I'll go with costumes. Those were nominated, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, either one, art direction or costumes, very beautiful, very lush, very fun to look at. Um, so I want to make sure that both are both are recognized on our meaningless podcast. So here's my go for costumes. This feels very very nihilistic. <laughs> what should we? Uh... What should we uh which what awards should we add though? Uh all that fire, that's pretty cool. Special effects. There was some blue screen in this too that was less impressive, but those fire th- that fire. Um yeah, I agree. I knew immediately when it happened what my choice would be. Rome begins to burn. We get that great set piece, and then we cut to Nero talking to Petronius and his buddies. And Nero's like, I'm going to sing a song that is better than Homer. And you know what? He does. He does sing a song better than Homer. Because, you know what? I definitely remember every single word of it, but it was massively entertained during it. Because Peter Sinov is not a great singer either. So it was just, he went for it. So I will give best original song nomination for Nero's song. Uh, Nero has a couple songs in, pre- in this. In parentheses, in parentheses, when Rome is burning. Yes. <laughs> Nero has a couple good songs. Well, not good songs in this. He has a couple songs in this that are entertaining <laughs> and how bad they How are. do we know? I mean, what if that was a, a, a real song that he sang? They got, that's not, what then, they got it from 64 AD? Yeah. Then that's when not original. <laughs> that's if, not an original song. What if this guy wasn't actually played by Peter Usinov and it, they just <laughs> got Nero? <laughs> What it what? was like, Bill and Ted, they just got Nero from that. It's like, hey, you're, you're about to be murdered. Do you want to star in a movie about everything you just did? He's like, yeah, sure. That's, and we actually just all... watched a snuff film because he kills, he dies no, on screen. No, because it all connects. Him. It all connects because Caleb said that some people thought he never died. It's true. He's he back. just went to the future. Because <laughs> he looks exactly like, what if Nero's Nero never just is Nero? Nero went to the future and joined NSF. <laughs> <laughs> that would explain the Charlie Chan movie. All right. You guys want to know what we're covering next time? I already know. Sure. Go ahead. It's the big 2-5, the 25th Academy Awards. Can I have a jump roll, please? We will be covering... Charles Vidor's Hans Christian Andersen. And if Charles Vidor is a similar, like, familiar name to you, it's because he directed a movie called A Song to Remember. And speaking of A Song to Remember, hopefully this movie has some songs to remember because it is a musical. It's our first musical, I believe, since Love Parade. I think it's about Hans Christian Andersen. I'm sure it'll be completely different from A Song to Remember. 
better or worse, we have to make our we have to call our shot. I think it'll be better just because it's musical inherently will make it more entertaining. Better because it'll remind me of the Little Mermaid. Worse because it will remind me of the Little Mermaid. <laughs> I will say this is a full hour shorter than the film we just watched. So what if because you know each of our decades has that genre that repeats, what if this decade was just three hour historical epics? I'd scream. <laughs> I would don't worry, when we get to The Irishman and Don't Look Up, those movies all feel longer. Well, The Irishman feels shorter than Don't Look Up. <laughs> Three and a half hours long. Uh, I'm Danny Vincent. You can follow me on Letterboxd at Blankments. You can listen to my other two podcasts, Wise with Ty and Dan, and Looking for the Ocean, a Pixar journey, wherever you find your podcasts. I am Caleb Bunn. You can find me at Caleb from the real world on Instagram and YouTube. And from there, you can find my litany of other podcasts, Hot Trash Unlimited, All New 52, and Star Wars Therapy. Special thanks to our editor, Joe. Thanks, Thanks, Joe. Joe. (laughs) Check it out. Your work cut out for you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And you can find me uh, on Letterboxd, Sarah Knopf. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, at SGK29, E-S-S-G-E-K-Y-29. You can find us, The Snub Club, on Facebook, The Snub Club, uh, Instagram, Snub Club Podcast, and Twitter, Snub Club Pod. See you next time with our buddy Hans and more Christians. And a Venmo request that was just completed by Caleb Bud. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Goodbye.